good. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And I think that in a broad and general view of the church across the American landscape, um, it might reveal that there are local assemblies as God had intended them to be. But at the same time, there are religious organizations that are really not what God intended. I'd like to make the argument that the difference might between be between the flesh-led churches and the spirit-led churches. A flesh-led church, you see, is often a gathering or organization of people who focus on excitement and fun and camaraderie. And, you know, that's not much different than guys hanging out at the local bar or the women uh, at the gardening club. The flesh-led church might well be characterized by being very intent about religion, maintaining a focus on liturgy with little emphasis on the Bible and great emphasis on church traditions. But the other side of that is the spirit-led church. And in contrast, that will be characterized by the truths of the Bible. The Holy Spirit will never shape a local, local church contrary to the truths that we find in Scripture because that is the authorized Word of God. That kind of church will be manifested by people who are born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Those people have a concern to help each other become more like Christ and being shaped by His Word. A Spirit-led church is not characterized by the life and excitement of the flesh, but by genuine, eternal life kind of traits. Eternal life traits that are Christ-like traits. And I hope and pray that Providence Bible Church is one of those spirit-led churches where we look at having Christ-like traits more and more. But I fear that there are many times that people don't understand how they are being influenced. I think... For us, if we stay on top of this issue, we can keep the church on track. But I think it's when we think that we are got everything all figured out and we don't figure where we're going, does it follow the Word of God? I think that's when the problem starts because we start to deceive ourselves. We start trending the wrong way. And we think that as long as we're excited and happy that we're on track. And so we can become deceived. The truth is we can get caught up in a spiritual holding pattern where we don't advance in our spiritual life and neither does anyone else. If you can find the problem areas in your life, you can extricate yourself from the bad and then integrate integrate into the good. I won't even... You know what? I'm not going for three strikes. <laughs> but the problem with that that thought is that all religious organizations around the world all focus on doing some sort of good. They have a universal teaching 
of doing good. So what distinguishes the biblical teaching of doing good from the teaching of all other religions? What makes the biblical view of doing good uniquely different from the worldly view, from every other religious view? Well, let me point out a few possibilities. First, the worldly ethical view defines a person to be good and to do good based on what is in the best interest of the majority of people. And so goodness is not defined by the good and sovereign God who created us and who has given us His gospel and His commands, but good is decided by what society believes to be good. And so if society believes that it's good to abort and murder unborn children and prevent unwanted children, then abortion, in their view, is good. There's also a worldly ethic view that defines a person to be good and to do good if the person deifies the concept of love. Which means that whatever a person believes to be loving in any particular situation is actually good. We see that now in, in, in this country. We see that a lot, especially with Black Lives Matter. A lot of people go, if I speak against anything, I'm not being seen as good. It doesn't matter how people go out and do whatever they want and destroy. They're doing that all in the name of goodness. And I'm not going to talk a, a lot about that. I'm just saying we can see when people love, they don't do that kind of thing. But, in that kind of situational ethics view, if it's actually the best to commit adultery or lie or steal in any particular situation in order to promote love, especially to the helpless or needy, then that's what we do. There's also the worldly ethical view that defines a person to be good and to do good acts in such a way that promotes his or her own self-interest. I mean, because after all, it's most important that you're happy. Let me just say, if we try to do that, my little happy bubble is going to bump into your little happy bubble at one time. And those happy bubbles don't like to be touching anyone else's happy bubble. And so there's a problem with that. When we think it's all about us. When we think that our happiness is the ultimate good. And nobody outside ourselves can tell us what would make us happy. And so we view everything in the world through the grid of our own purposes, our own goals, our own happiness. The biblical ethical system, though, is altogether contrary to every other ethical system. Because the good we should do is defined by an infinitely good and infinitely wise God as revealed in Holy Scripture. Good and doing good is what pleases God, not what pleases society, not that which pleases a deified concept of love or pleases the individual. Since we are created by God, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that might sound familiar to some of you. If you read the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's the first question. 
what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so you see, we exist to reflect His glory and His good image in all we do, think, and say. The problem is that due to sin and the corruption of our nature inherited from Adam, none of us by nature is good or does good. And Romans 3, 10 through 12 says that. But praise be to our good God. He has implanted His goodness within us as believers. We have the Holy Spirit that is in us through faith and through regeneration and is growing fruit of goodness throughout our Christian lives. In fact, those who trust in Christ alone for their justification has been, have been, as Ephesians 2.10 says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So with that, we'll go to our text in Galatians chapter 6. In verses 7 through 10. Starting with verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap the flesh, uh, will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, there's a principle that is operative in every area of life. Whether physical, spiritual, financial, academic, or moral. The principle is this. That you will reap, you will sow. What you sow, you will reap. What you plant, you will harvest. This principle is can be applied to every single thing in our life. It can be applied to sports, to school, to spiritual uh, life, to every single thing. And here's the point. If you make the primary ambition of your life to obey God's Word and yield to His Spirit, you will reap wonderful blessings in many areas in, of your life. If you make the primary ambition of your life to obey the flesh and please your own sinful nature, you will discover you will reap misery. It may not happen instantly, but you will eventually reap it. This was Paul's point. He was intent on driving home a very important point. A believer will spend his life sowing in one of two fields. God's Spirit-led field or his own flesh-led field. And that believer will reap the consequences of the field that he works the most. In the mind of Paul, there's only two possibilities of life. Either the believer will spend the majority of his time working in his own flesh-led field, or he will spend the majority of his time working in God's biblically-directed, spirit-led field. It's one or the other. Every day, we will sow in one of the other fields, and we will eventually reap what we sow. If you remember last week in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 6, it said, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Both the participles taught and teach are present tense, meaning They are continual and habitual action. 
What this means is that the believer who is continually and habitually being instructed and taught by the true teacher of God's Word has the responsibility to share all good things with that teacher. I had someone once ask, do you mind if I say amen during the sermon? That is sharing back. That is going, I am giving you just a a little bit back. And it's not like I'm looking for everyone to do that, but if it's on your heart, that doesn't bother me one bit because that's one of those things where you're going, that absolutely touched my heart. I saw what was being said and I loved what was being said because I see God's Word. And so another thing I want to do is is point out a critical grammatical point here, there is an, the article the before the noun word. And so in the Greek, the, it, it actually reads the word. So the critical factor here is that the pastor must be carefully, accurately, systematically teaching the word. It's not just something that he wants to preach. I'm not called to preach something just uplifting, give you a little devotional. I'm not to to give you a little sermonette. Because sermonettes are for Christianettes. So I'm not told to do that. I'm told to preach the Word of God. But here's the other side of that coin. If a pastor is not carefully teaching the Word of God, then the people should not be supporting him. And I suppose there are some who say, who cares about the Word? I'd rather support some other stuff than support a faithful preacher. Well, if you look at verse 7 of our text, here it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. This verse is connected to the preceding verse. God says to share with the one who faithfully teaches the Word. The tendency in Paul's day, and and especially in our day, is to lavish material benefits on the ear-tickling teachers of falsehood. God says, I want you all to know this. I will not be mocked in this. What this means is God will not allow someone to turn his nose up at his instruction on this point. How this is obeyed will affect us. When it comes to giving to a ministry, God will not be mocked. But even if he is mocked, the pastor needs to know a couple of things. If people reject a true teacher of God, God views it as rejection of Himself. If people reject the true teacher of God, God views that as a rejection of Himself. And the second is, God will always see to it that His true teachers have enough, even when God-mockers are starving. Now, carefully look at how the verse begins. Do not be deceived. There's a deception that occurs among many people. The deception is they think they can get away from not obeying the Word of God. But in Numbers 32.23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. Not might, but will. God says in Psalm 90 verse 8, that our secret sins are on display before God. Now if you look at the word reap in verse 7 of our text, it's in the future tense. So here's the deception. A person thinks that he can rebel or not obey God's word and get away with, with it, and they are being deceived. Because God will see it, and at some point in the future, you will reap what you have sown. 
we are certainly not surprised to be reminded that we can be deceived if we look at how Satan, the great deceiver, came into the picture. There's an accurate picture of this deceit in context to his final judgment in, Re- in Revelation 12.9, where John saw the great dragon was thrown down, that the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So it only stands to reason that Satan would be the deceiver because God is true and Satan is God's polar opposite. Therefore Jesus warned us in John 8.44 that Satan is the father of lies. In fact, in Genesis 3.4, the first mention of him in Scripture reveals him lying to Eve contradicting God. He said, you will not surely die, even though God said, you shall surely die on the day that you eat of this fruit. This is forbidden fruit. And just so you know, you look at that garden. It had every fruit we can conceive. We can possibly think about was in that garden. Plenty. But don't eat this one particular fruit. And they did. They had to have what was not permitted. And they listened to Satan And they were deceived. And they were led astray and seduced and caused to wander down a path of error. But you know what? So often Satan's leading doesn't look so dangerous because Satan comes as an angel of light. So it looks pretty appealing. The path of error looks right. Sometimes the Satan's deceptive path looks more right than the truth. And so the only way for us to keep from being deceived by Satan is to stay in the light of the truth of God's Word. That was actually David's conclusion in Psalm 119, where he says, through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But I want you to know this. Satan is not the only source of deception that we need to guard against. Our own flesh is also deceptive. And being in a deceptive flesh as we are in our natural condition... A lot of people go, you know, like Flip Wilson where he said, the devil made me do it. The devil can only entice you. You do what your own sinful nature desires. In Jeremiah 17.9, God spoke just that warning through Jeremiah. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Because of this mixed up condition in which we're born, we naturally desire that which is in conflict with God's truth. Our flesh deceives us and leads us down the wrong path. And pride can make a person do that. Pride can make a person think that he can make God forgive us of our sins. We need to understand, even though God's grace is free, the cost of sin is high. John MacArthur writes, Every sin I as a Christian commit is forgiven in Christ Jesus. 
But no sin is ever right or good. No sin ever produces anything right or good. The price for doing some, some things is terribly high, terribly unprofitable. Sin never brings profit. It always brings loss. End quote. You know, we can be deceived and be led into other deceptions. One of them is a life of ease. Our flesh loves to think that, you know, we desire or we deserve being pampered. That we should avoid work. There are many people who think, you know, I... I was brought up the first years of my life not having to do anything, and then at one time I can retire and do absolutely nothing again. It's not a matter of whether you're retired. But if you're retired, are you still set on doing the work God has set before you? That can be very deceptive. We naturally want to live our lives for the times of pleasure and the self-satisfaction. So many people in this world think that if only, if only I could win the lottery, my troubles would be over. And as a result of the deceiving flesh, the people who can least afford to buy the lottery ticket, guess what they do? They go and spend all their extra money on it. They're looking for that answer, that ease. If only I could do this. If only I could win. There was at one time a television show that showed lottery winners. Not one of them was happy. Not one. Matter of fact, most of their lives were destroyed. And then there's another very deceptive lie. Life is all about me. It's astonishing how many professing Christians actually believe this. It's absolutely astonishing. But they don't even think about the fact that that's the same attitude Satan had. The natural conclusion of our flesh is that life is all about me. And so verse 8 says, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will, will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Again, as I said, there are two fields which you can continually sow. Notice the beginning of verse 8, the conjunction 4. This explains that there are two fields. And here's the thing. You can't be in both fields at the same time. You're either in one or you're in the other. You continually sow in the field of flesh or you continually sow in the field of God's Spirit. And here are harvest possibilities. Some people may harvest corruption from God, judgment of God. Or some people may harvest heavenly blessings from God. The word corruption there is the Greek word flora, and it speaks to harvesting negative consequence, even including death. Possibly, if you're an unbeliever, reaping uh Eternal misery in hell. The word everlasting life doesn't contain an article. So Paul is speaking of the character and quality of reaping heavenly rewards in eternity. Works in eternity, whether in the preaching of the word or in life in general, will either turn out to be wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. If you would please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 9 through 15.
1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting with verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. Here I just want to stop for a second. We are God's fellow workers. That means we work together with God. Not equally to God, but together with God. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, woods, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as though through fire." See, it's talking about a believer there that if you don't lay down the right thing and you are a believer, you will be saved, but you are going to have a reaping of what you've sowed. Now, the flesh-controlled believer and the spirit-controlled believer, they'll both go to heaven. But one will lose rewards and one will earn rewards. It depends upon on what you sow here. What you sow as you're living in this life. And I hear this so often. So many people say, but I'm a Christian. I'm, a, I'm under grace. God's not going to do anything to me. Just that statement is arrogance. There is an inviolable law in the universe. You violate it, Christian or not Christian, it will bring consequence. Because God says in His Word, do not be deceived. Why? Again in verse 7, God is not mocked. What does that mean? That he is not fooled or outwitted. You cannot fool God. You cannot outwit God. The Greek, literal Greek, is to turn up your nose at him. Thinking you can violate his law and get away with it. Because I'm a Christian. Christ paid for all of that. Doesn't work that way. A person either sows in the flesh or they sow to the Spirit. And a person doesn't have to wait until heaven to reap some of the consequences. The Christian who sows in the flesh may end up reaping corruption. You know how? A degeneration of joy. A degrading of your peace that you have. The unsaved person, they continue to sow corruption and they will reap the ultimate death. Eternity in hell. But you know what? There are some times when the Christian who sows constantly in the flesh, reaps death as well. Not eternal. It's just where God takes you home right away. 
Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they never reap holiness. You can't. Holiness is the harvest of sowing to the Spirit. If you see an unholy Christian, and I'm not talking about their position, I'm talking about their practice, if you see a Christian with sin in their life, it is because they, fl- they sow to the flesh. You sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. And some people, it's unto death. And that's sad to think about. But the end of verse 8, he says, He who sows in the Spirit will reap everlasting life. What does that mean? Well, to be filled with Spirit, dominated by the Spirit, preoccupied by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, Christ-conscious, studying the Word, praying, dominated by the things of the Spirit. That's what it means. It means that you set your heart and your life upon the things of God. And people go, well, I can't do that. There are people that will come against me. If God is for you, who can be against you? My goodness. We need to understand that. We need to understand. It is tough. But the Creator is for you. And so what happens is so many times we start to adapt to this modern age and we don't call sin, sin. And we don't really think that there are any ramifications for what we do. You know, we, we might even argue that we're going to do what we have chosen even if it's clearly contrary to God's principle because yeah, later on I'll, I'll get things right. I'll make it right. But the fact is, sowing demands reaping. The argument here is that when we sow seeds of contempt for God, we will reap a harvest commensurate with contempt. I can give you a couple examples of those people who harvested a painful, sorrowful harvest. The Israelites that died in the desert. Their posterity was regularly overrun by the Midianites, the Philistines, the Ammonites, and the forefathers of Hamas. David's family was plagued. Ananias and Sapphira died. Careless people in Corinth became sick and dead and died. It's, inc- it's critically important that we consider daily whether we are f- sowing flesh seed or spirit seed. Because there's a direct correlation to what we sow. That's what we reap. We cannot sow disobedience to God and expect to reap blessings. You can't sow the flesh all day long and then complain that you reaped a harvest of disappointment. I mean, what do you expect? If you end up sowing anger and bitterness and grouchiness and irritability and you want to be bossy and rude and quick-tempered to people, what do you expect? And I'll tell you, don't think that you can cancel it all with a little bitty quick prayer asking for God's blessing. Because it doesn't work that way. You reap what you sow. That's not to say that you can't repent of it and turn. But see, here's the thing. Repent means turning from. But it also means turning to. We can turn from this and turn to something else. Or we can turn from this and go 180 and turn to God. That is what we must do. 
It's not just a matter of saying, you know, oh God, I'm sorry I did this, and then do it again. And so verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. This is a good and necessary challenge because the opposite of sin, the opposite of the world, the opposite of sowing spirit seed, or the opposite is sowing spirit seed, and it's hard. It's hard. And you know what? It's just easy to sow the flesh seed because it makes us happy. It's easy to throw caution to the wind because so often we see sowing the spirit seed. There's some pain involved as God is uh, refining us. But he says don't become weary. The Greek word is ekluo. It means don't become tired. Don't yield to despair. Don't become discouraged and lose heart. Don't think about giving up. I mean, we've all felt that way, right? We all do. We all get to the point where we go, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? How do you keep from doing that, though? Well, we need to keep our eye on the harvest. We need to understand in due season we will reap if we don't give up. If we have consistent practice of walking by, living by, enjoying the fruit of the Spirit, increasing in the fruit of the Spirit. We saw that in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You end up producing those. That's what you're going to reap. You will find more and more joy as you become more and more Christ-like. Paul says, I count it all joy, the persecution and trials. How? Because he didn't give up. He kept going. He sowed in the spirit field. Secondarily, though, the promise of reaping is also true in that ultimately we will rejoice in the harvest of eternity because we will see Christ and we will be like Him. It means perfect. It doesn't mean that we're going to be deified. If you'd please turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And there is a very interesting statement at the end of this. First John chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3. And notice as he starts, he says, Beloved. That's always, when you see beloved, that means those who are Christians. That's the beloved in Christ. And he goes on to say, Now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now listen to this next section. And everyone who has this hope in Him, does what? Purifies himself just as He is pure purifies himself just as he is pure. Keep doing what is good. Be zealous to do what is good. 
for anyone and everyone according to the opportunity given you. Take every opportunity. There's a popular gospel though, right, going on that talks about reaping, uh, talks about sowing and reaping, and it's the prosperity gospel. And it attempts to tweak the principles of sowing and reaping as a way to leverage health and wealth and success and happiness from God. That's similarly, very eerily similar to the legalistic teaching of the Judaizers that thought they could earn blessings from God. If I give enough, if I believe enough, then God is obligated to bless me here and now. And if God does not bless me, if I'm not healthy and not wealthy and not successful and not happy, then obviously I haven't given enough and I haven't believed enough and so there's something wrong with me that I'm not in God's favor. You know, when I look at the life of Paul, I don't see health and wealth. I see a man who is faithful, obedient to the Lord. He is God's guy. He was repeatedly jailed and beaten and hungry and shipwrecked and snake-bitten. He had a thorn in the flesh that would not go away. And he was later beheaded for his faith. This is important right now. Because what's coming in our country is an attack of Christianity. There is a good chance that I could and any of you be put into prison because of our faith. Any one of us could have that happen. If you would, this isn't in your outline, but if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and starting with verse 35. Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to see this because I want you to have the hope. I want you to have the encouragement to keep going when things get tough. Hebrews chapter 11 Starting with verse 35, and I'm going to put my glasses on because I don't want to miss a word of this. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And just a word about that sawn in two. They used to have saws with a guy on either side. They'd put the person down. They wouldn't let that saw touch until they took one really good swipe, cut them in half so that this person was still alive. And people would see the terror on that person's face, or face and they would go, oh, I don't want that to be me. They made it as gruesome and horrible as possible. That is what being sawn in two is. So that it's not just this thing, oh, we're just going to... This is as quick as they could do so this person actually had this fear and, and horror on their face. And, and it says, we're tempted, we're slain with the sword. They wandered around in, in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. This is the key. Verse 38 of whom the world was not worthy. My goodness. Of whom the world was not worthy. We are heading there. And we need to make sure that we come together as a body of Christ and, and support each other, help each other, because time is coming. When that could be us. A time is coming. And so when we look at Paul's life, we see that all of this was done 
And we sit there and we go, well, this health and wealth, prosperity doctrine, that doesn't add up to what we see here. Nor does it add up to what we just read in Hebrews 11. And when we look at all the other apostles, it's no different. I was reminded of when Satan tempted Jesus before his earthly ministry. Satan even used Scripture to try to force God's hand to manipulate him. And Jesus wouldn't do that. And we can't do that. We cooperate with God. We don't manipulate God. And so we read in verse 10 of our text, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us all do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Why is Paul telling us? Because it can be discouraging to do good. It can, it can be discouraging outwardly to sow the Spirit and not see reward. Again, the seed that is planted does not always bear fruit immediately. Sometimes you have to give it time. Time to take root and bear fruit. Here Paul challenges the Galatians to keep on loving and caring and sharing. And did you notice it says, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Especially. We need that. We need to understand we're in it for the long run. And it's, it's difficult work at best. There are times when we'll be tired. It's time, there are times when we won't feel appreciated. There's times when we want to throw our hands up in frustration and quit. I remember once asking a, a, another pastor, I said, do you ever feel like quitting the ministry? And he said, yeah, every Monday. I've felt like that before. But I have to be reminded that, that the Lord of the harvest is in charge. And in due season, there is a season appointed for you and I, and we will reap. So don't lose heart. Continue to trust and obey and seize the opportunities to love and care and share with one another because that is a strong testimony when we do that outside the church. How we treat each other is our greatest attraction to the world seeking love and kindness and compassion. I once read a story about a pastor in a small rural church in Scotland. He had been forced out by the eldership of his church because they claimed they saw no fruit of his ministry. The village where the pastor served was a difficult place. Most of the people had cold and hostile hearts. They didn't want to hear the truth. And during that time that the pastor served, they didn't see conversions and they didn't see baptisms. And he didn't recall even one positive response to his preaching. But one Sunday, after he got done preaching, the offering plate was passed during the service. And one boy, when the, when the plate got to him, he set it on the floor and he stood in it. And he said, I have nothing to give but myself. When asked... To explain, he replied that the pastor's sermon had deeply touched him. And as he saw this man content with preaching the Word of God, seeing no benefits, and living a life to glorify God, sowing in that spirit field, he said, I want to give myself wholly to God. That young boy that stepped into the plate was Bobby Moffat, who in, seven, in 1817 became a pioneer missionary to South Africa. He was used greatly of God and he touched many lives. And it all started with a small church and the faithful work of an unappreciated pastor. Simply put, the requirement is to love God supremely and to love your neighbor like yourself. So, the Spirit seed. 
more specifically, are we, we are to do good, especially to those in the household of faith, especially those brothers and sisters that are here. We will need that. We will need that. Although it's not in Scripture, there are some who say that before Peter was crucified, we all know that that tradition says he was crucified upside down. There's also some that say that before that happened, his wife was put on a cross and was crucified. The greatest thing that they can do is not to kill you, is to kill those other people that you love to get you to renounce. She's said to have been said, remember the faith, Peter. Remember the faith. How many of us, if a loved one, was being tortured? I think about my preaching. It could be as simple as someone hearing my message, finding out where, not where I live specifically, but probably where my brothers and my sisters, those who are friends, and pressure them to where they call up and say, Brendan, will you please stop? We didn't ask for this. That's what they do. And I I know I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. And this is from R.C. Sproul as he was uh, talking to this Jewish man. He said that there were the Nazis had rounded up a a bunch of people. And they had them in a circle. And this woman is holding this little baby, a toddler. And the guy came up and said, shut that baby up. The baby continued to cry. And he said, I told you, shut that baby up. The baby started to cry. The guy went up to the lady And standing next to her was her five-year-old, shot the five-year-old in the head. He didn't take the baby's life. He wanted the mother to have terror. That is the biggest thing. That's why people who say they can do without being in a body, they're fooling themselves. We are here to... Come alongside each other. Hold each other up. To encourage each other in the faith when it gets hard. That's why we gather together and we praise God that He is our God. We need to understand that God is sovereign. He is the Creator. And He will give us the reward for what we sow. And so we need to sow the Spirit, Spirit seed, every day, all day. And our supply of that seed is the Bible, right here. Anyone pulls away from this and starts to tell you something contrary to this, pull away. Pull away. And it says to do it as opportunity. Look for that opportunity. Look for every opportunity to share the gospel. Look for every opportunity. That's why here we are committed to expository preaching, verse by verse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we're to sow the Spirit. There's life everlasting. To sow the flesh, there's corruption and death. 
we pray that we might sow to the Spirit and of the Spirit reap all the blessings of everlasting life. I pray that we would constantly and faithfully and continually sow to the Spirit, knowing the harvest will come in your good time. Help us to do good to all men, especially those who are in the household of faith. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.